This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, Episode 166. Sean Morrissey is landlording for life. Traditional financial planning is no longer working. And in the new normal economy, your host, certified financial planner Mark Willis, invites you to join us as we engage the new and improved steps for establishing financial sanity. Be curious, be stable, be sane. This is Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. Welcome to this week's episode. I know that you all have been there before, where your palms start to sweat, your mind begins to race, and you know your life is never going to be the same again. I don't know what that event was for you. Maybe it was when you realized you were going to have a baby, or when you knew it was time to leave your home for somewhere new. Maybe it was what you were doing on the day the 9-11 attacks hit the Twin Towers. Whatever it was for you, Take yourself back to that moment. Remember everything that was happening, the people speaking, the clothes you might have been wearing, the other events that happened later that day. It's those simple moments that define the rest of our lives. And that's where we start our interview with Sean Morrissey. He's our guest for today's episode. He's an amazing guy, a very kind gentleman, but also a very astute real estate investor who stumbled across some very important things in his relationship to banks. So Sean Morrissey is a landlord and a real estate broker in the western suburbs of Chicagoland. He's built a $7 million real estate portfolio and owns and manages Chicagoland Realty Group Partners, LLC. Having managed 200 properties for landlords across Chicagoland, Sean has built a property management system to make buy and hold real estate sustainable and wealth building. Sean's proudest achievement is being able to spend his days with his wife, his two kids, dog and cat, in what some may define as a financial freedom lifestyle. Sean is the host of the Real Estate Buy and Hold Investor Podcast called Landlording for Life. Now, before we jump into this interview, I just really want to say there were some important moments during the interview that I want to pay close attention to. The first is, listen for what he describes financial independence as for him. The second is, listen for what we ended up discussing in my financial analysis with him. He, like many of our clients, went through our process where we learn and listen carefully to what his goals and concerns are. And amidst that conversation, we started talking about his life insurance that he had already set up from 10 years ago. And he thought he had something like Bank on Yourself. Unfortunately, he did not have a Bank on Yourself professional design it. And he had ended up with a policy that grew much too slow, one in which the expenses will continue to rise and gobble up his cash value and another policy which is just designed more for the insurance agent's commissions than his own wealth accumulation. So listen for that and some of the key changes we're able to make to help save him all the work he's put into those policies for the last 10 years. And then stay to the end of the episode where I describe a strategy that for anyone investing in real estate might be able to continue to get a tax-free income throughout their retirement years and then also avoid a major taxable estate when you might pass away, leaving a bunch of real estate to your kids or grandkids. So stay to the end of this episode and find that strategy toward the end. I can't wait to give you guys the insights that Sean has to share. So take it away, Sean. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So we've already covered your illustrious career that you're in now, your bio, uh, but take us even further into the future. Uh, One of the things I really learn from people is what they would want written 
on their tombstone, so to speak, or even a little less morbid than that, maybe. How do you want to be described, Sean, when you leave the room? How do you want people to talk about you when you've left the room? I, I think for me personally, I'm, I'm the kind of guy who's always trying to approach life from the, the bigger picture. So at the end of the day, I've found myself in the past, I guess, just being too narrow-minded. And what I mean by that is you may see the trees, but not the forest. Earlier today, I was describing to someone that when they're goal setting, they need to lead with lifestyle first, not with not with dollars first. Because I feel it's so easy for us to set up objective goals on an annual basis that are tied to a number. And right. while you may hit that number, it might tear you away from the lifestyle that you really wanted all along. So we've got to remember that at the end of the day, lead with lifestyle instead of in dollars. And in, in mm. reference to the tombstone, end of life type of question, at the end of the day, I'm really all I'm trying to do is, is leave my family and my, my kids with a legacy. And I guess the way I see that personally is with buy and hold real estate and uh, that stepped up depreciation, stepped up basis, I should say. And we don't need to get into that, but it's ultimately leading the next, leaving the next generation better off than I am today or where I was as a kid. And that's really all it comes down to is that and leading with lifestyle. And if I can do those two things, peace of mind is all we're after. And that's mm -hmm. where I'm coming from. Man, that's great. Leaving the world and your family better than you found them. I can't think yeah. of a better way to spend our time on this side of the grass. So right? I think that's really cool, Sean. Rock and roll. I'm just out of curiosity. What does financial freedom mean? Give us, take it down the ladder a few rungs. What does that look like? What kind of lifestyle is that's going to be different for everybody, but for Sean, what does that mean for you? What does that look like for you? Yeah, it's as simple as being able to wake up in the morning and choose what you want to do when you want to do it on your own terms. And I came to that conclusion after years of working in uh, the corporate restaurant business and found after really after nine years of, of managerial roles that I was not a good fit for the corporate structure coupled with the fact that it left me, it, frankly, it left me empty. So the avenue I found to obtain financial freedom per se, and it's such an elusive word, right? Financial freedom. I can define what it means to me in an equation format, but at the end of the day, it's waking up, doing what you want to do on your own terms while knowing that you're setting yourself and your family up with a, a wealth legacy. So buy and hold real estate was my exit for that. Now, the way I equate financial freedom is in essence, there's different levels to it. And if those of you or those of your listeners that follow like the Bigger Pockets website, there's some different information on there. But at the end of the day, it's hitting three times your monthly expenses. If you can do that, typically you can live comfortably with anticipated risks involved and get by and be able to do what you want to do when you want to do it. But you've got to strive for some level of, of passive income or you know income that doesn't involve hourly work to get paid. So you've got to be able to leverage your time to obtain that income. Buy and hold real estate is just one way to do that. There's different businesses that can do that as well. It, it's all relative to what you want to explore. Wow. So true. Okay. So when we first met, Sean, I, I think we met uh, through podcasting, which is amazing. We're all living in the future where we can have these discussions. You're just down the street. You know, as well as I do, that podcasts bring you into the boardrooms and executive suites of incredible people like yourself all around the world. So tell me when we met originally and we had a further conversation, one of the things you brought up to me was that you remembered what it felt like 
and what happened to you when banks all of a sudden lowered your line of credit. Can you bring us to that moment uh, in your business, in your buy and hold, uh, in your rental real estate? What happens? What's that like? How did you find out about it? Just take us to that moment. Yeah, absolutely. So, boy, it was back in 2007. I began as a landlord really in 2003. So by 2007, I was getting my feet dirty, was ultimately building up a little properties as the market was taking off. And I was offered a home equity line of credit, ultimately had it for, gosh, I think it was just under 10 months. And I, I still remember where I was. I was at a hardware store here in town, decided to take the call when I was in the hardware store shopping. And I was the banker basically telling me we're freezing your line of credit. And me and all my naivete was ultimately like, you can do that. <laughs> it's even allowed. Like you're offering this to me. And now 10 months later, you're taking it away. Who do you think you are? Fortunately, I used the line of credit to buy a property, but ultimately was like, now that takes away a, a, a healthy source of liquidity that I could have tapped into all in a heartbeat. So it was, it was a scary moment. At the same time, it made me realize my dependency on the bank, which in hindsight is, is not a healthy thing. Yeah. Well, you're so right. Uh, it is a kind of a dependency. It is not healthy. It's, but it's the average way, right? If you're going to get into business, if you're going get, to get into real estate, you're going to lever up your house. You're going to lever up all your other assets. And uh, we're going to put it all on a line of credit. And, and the bank is the one that holds the purse strings, quite literally. When yeah. was that? When did that happen? 2007. I, I believe it was like winter of 2007, looking back. Okay. Yeah, I was going to say, what's going on yeah. in the real estate market as this is all going down? Yeah. Take us back there. Yeah, that was, that was uh, the last hurrah. We were ultimately coming off the cliff of that bubble and uh, the bank knew it at that point. That's when they pulled the, the rug out from under me. And then it was a good four years before I could buy anything else. And a lot of that was just due to the fact that banks weren't lending anymore or their non-owner occupied purchase restrictions were so high that I, I couldn't meet those thresholds. So it was a survival time those four years and a lot learned, especially in reference to, to where we are now and even a more strange market in uh, 2020. Okay. And I want to come to 2020, but first tell me, what did that do to you or your business uh, in particular? Explain a bit about the business and the work you do and what you're an, an expert in. And then what does liquidity mean for your business? Yeah, I've got a few different arms to my business model, so really three arms. I, As I stated, I got started as a buy and hold investor, real estate investor back in 2003. In essence, I'm a landlord. I've been a landlord for 17 years now. I have a property management division to my real estate business. I actually sold that back in 2018, but I retained ownership of the S-Corp. So there's a little bit of stuff going on in there, but ultimately I retained the systems um, that have helped me scale my real estate investment model. And then I also have a real estate brokerage here in the Chicagoland area. So we do buying and selling of residential property, do some light commercial stuff like that. So those three together really encompass me, um, all real estate related, all focused on the idea that we build wealth through home ownership and buy and hold uh, real estate, buy and hold rentals. Okay. And what is the use of money? What is the value of liquidity in, in your business? That's a good point, especially right now, because at the end of the day, when you look at where we're at in 2020, we're here in the state of Illinois, we're under an eviction moratorium through October 17th. It's already been pushed back, what, four different times. 
Wow. And what that's basically telling landlords is you cannot evict a tenant in court and you can't kick them out. You can't do anything. So if a tenant doesn't pay their rent, you're ultimately on the hook. And while some banks have offered some form of forbearance, things of that nature, the moment you take that forbearance, I anticipate you're you're going to regret it. It's going to hit your credit report, whatever the case might be. But that's all beside the point. I'm just trying to give an example to show that liquidity in the landlording business is is critical, not only because of the uh, rent that you may have to cover on behalf of your tenant right now, but also because uh, you have to have the ability to forecast repairs. That might be capital improvements, the big expensive stuff, or it could just be the the day-to-day little stuff. And then outside of that, if you want to scale your portfolio, you have to have funds set aside so that you can purchase future properties or, or set yourselves up with line of credit or creative financing techniques to make it happen. So I don't know if that answers your question, Mark, but that's a broad picture of, I guess, how money plays a role in the different facets of my landlording mm-hmm. model. And tell me, what do you feel like people don't really realize about needing and being dependent on a bank when you're doing the great work you do? in real estate investing and then buy and hold as a landlord, what do you think the average guy or gal doesn't realize about the need we have for banks and access to capital? I I think anybody that got started after 2011 in in real estate investing has dabbled in real estate investing. You've had it easy, right? And even into today, in the fall of 2020, ultimately the banks have made it incredibly easy to buy. Not as easy as it was in 0405, where anybody with a heartbeat could get a mortgage, but it's still very easy. Having said all that, we've been in this weird position all year where ultimately there's this influx of money, but at the same time, I don't feel like the banks are kicking out enough of it. Having said all that, we haven't seen a crunch on the lending side. And when that comes, you've got to make sure you're liquid enough so that you've got the ability to weather that storm. And if you're not, then you'll be up at the sheriff's sale here in town with your property for sale and owned by the bank. Yeah, that's the way I I look at it. At the end of the day, boy, what's the rule of thumb? You want to hold aside roughly 3% of whatever you're collecting in rent for capital reserves, but I'd ultimately say another 3% of that per month of your rent uh, just to go into your liquidity bucket. And that's just to separate yourself from unforeseen circumstances. So- yeah, that's a good rule of thumb. I, Can could you say that rule of thumb one more time? Yeah, three three percent for capital expenditures typically, and actually let me add one more piece, Mark. Three percent for capital expenditures, five percent for vacancy. At least here in the the Chicagoland area, it can change anywhere in the country based on what you feel your vacancy factor is. But five percent here in Chicago is fair, and then three percent just as a liquidity factor. So ultimately, that could be your uh, miscellaneous fund, whatever the case might be. You just want to hold that aside for liquidity. But ultimately, when you buy a property, you want to make sure that you have roughly 3% of the purchase price set aside for liquidity as well. Yeah, it's you know, there's, there's different spreadsheets that I work with that incorporate that kind of factor. But ultimately, having funds set aside for the what if game is, is very important when it comes to uh, buy and hold real estate. Flipping, it's even more important. You got to take that stuff into account. Yeah, the expenses are not clearly laid out on that contract when you sign that mortgage deed or sign get the deed or get the mortgage or whatever it is. You get a lot of surprises with real estate, as good as it is, as yes. wonderful as the tax advantages are. Okay, so you and I met, Sean, and we had a financial analysis, which is something I do with clients over Zoom or phone call. 
And it's a good, what, it was about a 90 minute meeting. So we went deep. We went into some of these goals, some of the concerns you had, some of your dreams and hopes and, and desires for financial freedom as you defined it for you and your family. And we got to a certain point, we went over everything, cash in the bank and debts and that sort of thing. But then we got to the section of the conversation where we talk a little bit about your existing life insurance policies. And part of the reason why we wanted to have this conversation with our audience today is you found some things that were a surprise to you. And from your perspective, with your own words, what was your experience? What did you find uh, in your research and preparing for that phone call? I tell you what, Mark, if you don't mind, let me just take a step back and maybe explain to the listeners what my policies are. Yeah. And then I can, yeah, I can lead into that. So boy, about 10 years ago, in fact, it's over 10 years ago, I opened up a universal life policy and ultimately it made regular premium payments into that nice death benefit, but I've seen the cash value on that grow very slowly. And you don't really realize it till you're a few years in and you start to educate yourself and you're saying, I can do better. About uh, three years ago now, I actually opened um, a Penn Mutual policy, which was considered bank on yourself and much better improvement on the cash value side. The death benefit is lower, grows over time. I won't get any into it any deeper than that, but I will say that based on my conversation with you, Mark, um, ultimately you point out what I consider to be a major flaw in that policy. And I'll let you go over the terminology, but in essence, what it is, is that if I am to take a, a loan against that policy within the first 10 years, I'm in essence penalized. It's not going to grow like I was told it was going to grow. And I brought this I, to the advisor and he confessed to it. And I was a little disappointed, but maybe you can explain it a little more depth, Mark. Yeah. And if listeners want to dive deeper into all the specifics of what we call a bank on yourself type whole life policy, go listen to episode 159. And also if you want to 160, where we really go into this in depth and why working with a bank on yourself professional makes a tremendous amount of difference in the big picture. Sean, thank you for sharing that. Uh, and we won't go into any more detail than you want to for sake of your confidentiality, of course. But uh, you brought it up. Universal life is a generally not a good fit for the bank on yourself concept. But even Penn Mutual, while a mutual company, while a dividend paying company, on a whole life insurance chassis with paid up addition riders, all those sound just right. And that's all the ingredients for bank on yourself. You were not working, if I recall, with a bank on yourself professional. Is that right? Not a quote unquote bank on yourself professional. No, <laughs> he was referred to me as a bank on yourself professional with the Penn Mutual policy. Mm -hmm. However, the, the universal life policy naturally was mm -hmm. uh, visited a financial advisor who was in essence, my parents' financial advisor. So you can see over a 10-year time frame, my uh, trajectory of learning has been, it's been a lot. And oh, now man, I'm yeah. trying to figure out the best way to handle that universal life policy to get it, to get it growing quicker without giving away too much of the uh, premium I've spent into it over the years. So um, figuring out how to tweak that has been the next step in my game here. It's so common, Sean, I'm telling you, the, you're, you were just interested in financial freedom, maybe some death benefit in case of an early passing uh, and then cash accumulation, especially with Penn Mutual. It was given to you as a, uh, they, I think they called it cash flow banking or something like that. In those episodes, episode 159 and 160, there's a lot of kind of nicknames for the strategy that have no credential or training program behind it for the advisor. 
And one of the gotchas you rightly pointed out at this particular company and mutual, not to, not to specifically call them out or whatever, but there's a specific gotcha in their contract where for the first decade of cash accumulation, there is a what's called direct recognition loan provision. And that sounds like gobbledygook, doesn't mean a thing to most 99% of people. Uh, but what it does is it's a dramatic uh, change in the nature of when you borrow from the cash. So if I've got $100,000 in cash value at a direct recognition company, the money will stop earning dividends anytime I borrow out that cash on the portion that I borrowed. So if I've got 100 grand in cash value, and I borrow out 30,000 to invest in a real estate deal or buy a car, my policy will only give me growth and dividends on the remaining money, the 70,000 that's left in the policy. That's direct recognition. On non-direct recognition companies, it will give us the full growth and dividends on the entire 100,000 bucks, even the portion that you'd borrowed out, the 30 grand in this case. That sounds like good news for the real estate investor who's trying to keep liquid and keep some arbitrage, to use another $2 cocktail word. But it really matters that after the 10th year, you basically get an, a quick notice in the mail that you have a choice at this company you have a whole life policy with. You have one shot, basically one choice to switch over to non-direct uh, 10 years after you start your contract. It might remembering that correctly, Sean? Yeah, that's in essence how we're defining my policy. And I was not aware of the direct recognition aspect. So it's uh, it's an eye-opener. You now know more than the average insurance agent on how these policies and contracts work. That's kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. I certainly didn't get taught this um, in my state license exams for insurance. I didn't even get taught these strategies or these particulars when it comes to getting my certified financial planner designation. It really came through the bank on yourself professional training program that took me a good three years to really become a master at. I'm still learning, still growing. So how would you see, given all that we've learned, what are your hopes? How does this, how do your life insurance policies have anything to do with your real estate? What do you hope to see them do with properly designed bank on yourself type policies in the future, what do you hope to see happen as you move toward that maybe more better uh, designed policy? I, I think for me personally, now I'm a guy in my early 40s. At the end of the day, I look at my policy from now until I'm 60 as a fund it to grow and have some death benefit so that if I kick the bucket, my family has the tools in place to either pay off the existing real estate portfolio or stay liquid enough so that they can sell it over time, whatever they want to do. So finding that balance now is important for today. Then when I'm 60 and older, ultimately use that cash value to better fund my lifestyle. Now, having said all that, initially when I was told the idea of read, read, um, read up on, on the bank yourself policies and, and whatnot, I thought, oh, great. I can fund all my real estate deals like this and all that great stuff. And you can do that but you've got to understand what you've got to put in the policy in order to get that dividend to grow the way you want it to. So if you, for me, looking back, I set my sights too small. I basically said, all right, I'm going to put this little premium in and it's going to grow. And five years in, 
10 years in and I'm like, eh, I got enough where I can do something with it. But if I want to take down commercial deals, cash only deals, stuff like that, I needed to think bigger. So I think that's, that's part of what I'm doing now with this universal life policy and trying to wrap my head around how I'd restructure it is I want to think big enough so that I can be satisfied 10, 20 years down the road that I did everything I could to meet what I meet my expectations. But at the same time, don't necessarily over leverage myself. So it's finding that balance. And I, I think it takes, uh, it takes a little bit of digging and, and some self-reflection to figure out what you're comfortable with. In order to do that, you got to understand where you want to be in 10, 20 years and really set up some goals for yourself so that uh, meet those. I love how long range you think, Sean. I think that's the right way to go. When do we ever not anticipate needing to involve ourselves with money and the economy? And when do we want our money at its most efficient? Usually it's when in our later years, when we need to depend on that, on that efficiency even greater. Now yeah. we still have our faculties around us. We still can get up and make a phone call and buy a property and all that. But it's going to be later when your kids are helping take care of you and you got your great grandkids all around you and all that, that yeah. we're going to need that money just spinning like crazy. Yeah. Um, the whole life policy gets more efficient every year we keep it. And that's a powerful uh, concept when it comes to taking money out of the policies, either to supplement your retirement or to leave a legacy. I'll leave our audience and maybe I'll get your feedback on this as well, Sean, with two little ideas as it relates to how real estate and bank on yourself type policies fit together like a hand in glove or like peanut butter and jelly or nitro and glycerin, as I like to say, uh, they're better together than they are apart. So what are we doing right now with your real estate? I assume you're doing depreciation to get some tax advantages right now. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So part of the gotcha there is you're lowering your income now to get that rent money at a tax deductible, like ta lower tax rate. So if you didn't take those deductions, all of your income from the rent would be fully taxable. When you have rent coming at you now, you have the power to lower your reported income on your tax return because there are currently ways you can deduct the expenses and depreciation of the real estate. Does that all sound right so far, Sean? You are correct. Yeah. And in, in that typically on a residential property takes 27 years, but mm -hmm. there's also, if your listeners want to dig deeper, there's also bonus depreciation, there's cost yes. segregation, there's stuff like that to accelerate the process. But you got to keep in mind that you may take this depreciation, but eventually you got to pay the piper. There you go. Um, yep. And so true. So let's fast forward. Uh, again, I love your long range thinking. So now you're 65 years old, let's say, and, and we've fully done the bonus depreciation, cost segregation. We fully maxed out our capacity with those properties. What are our options? We're going to be realizing all that rent unless you've been gracious enough to just stop collecting rent from people in your retirement, which I'm guessing probably won't happen on, uh, probably. probably not. And in fact, maybe you've raised the rent a bunch on folks. So now your income is quite high. What can we do? One thing you, you can do is use your whole life policy as a stream of tax-free income to buffer or bulwark against that tax that'll be coming at you. Maybe yeah. you put the rent into a charitable trust that you don't receive, okay? And you take tax-free income out of your life insurance and keep you in a 0% bracket or close to zero uh, percent tax bracket all throughout your retirement years. And then what happens? As you should pass, maybe many years from now, 
hopefully, after you've taken all that tax-free money out of the policy, you've still got a massive death benefit that can be used if there's an estate tax on all your real estate holdings. So without the whole life, now we've got to sell a bunch of real estate. The kids have got to sell a bunch of real estate to cover Uncle Sam's estate tax bill that comes after six months after you decide to graduate on us. But when you have a whole life policy, man, you got an estate liquidator right there. It covered the tax that was due on all that real estate. So your family gets to receive the continued appreciation, rent checks on all the properties you've been so diligent to grow and maintain over your lifetime. So talk about long range thinking, man. Plus you get the step up in basis as long as that's still around 70 years from now or whatever. Um, yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Well, so, yeah, Mark, that was fantastic. I didn't, I haven't even thought that all the way through the, the charitable trust idea. And just the fact that when that depreciation runs out, I can take from another source of income to, to basically cover my, my taxable burden. It's mm, good stuff. Love it. Yeah. It's a Swiss army knife. It's for our whole life. Forgive the pun there, <laughs> but you can use this thing in a couple different ways to make sure that it becomes a part of the overall portfolio. It's not meant to be, I, I always tell folks, don't just buy a whole life policy and think you're set. The whole life policy is really just our parking space for our vehicle, our money in between the deals that come along and come across your desk. I, and I think maybe Sean, the, the person who's quoted saying, opportunities come to those who can say yes to them. And you'll never see that great opportunity, that great real estate deal, if you're living paycheck to paycheck. So by building a giant storehouse of wealth can really give you the advantage to take advantage of that opportunity when the time comes. Okay, well said. so I'm off my soapbox. Back to how we can dive deeper into Sean's world. Can you tell us who would love, who would be benefited most from getting to know you better? Who are you best suited to work with? Sean, who, are, who would most find value in the work you do? Yeah, like I'd stated, I have a, a real estate brokerage here um, in Aurora, Illinois, actually, but we service the Chicagoland area. And I'm, I'm a numbers guy, right? I'm, I'm a great guy to work with. If you've thought about getting into uh, buy and hold real estate, rental real estate, on a commercial level as well. I've managed up to 200 properties in the past, the third-party property management, sold that neck of the business a few, a few years ago, uh, may look into getting into it next year, 2021, depending on how the market plays in. But at the end of the day, service will towards those individuals who are looking to build wealth through real estate. And like you had stated, Mark, you can do that in conjunction with your uh, bank on yourself whole life policy. And that's the beautiful thing. Awesome. Yeah, they're great couples together. I think they're a great team. Thelma and Louise, Batman and Robin, we can keep going here. All right. How can folks reach out to you, Sean? And what's the best way for them to keep up with what you're up to? Yeah, you bet. So they can go right to my website, chicago-realty-group.com. Uh, we've got some information there. We also host a podcast called Landlording for Life. So as you can tell by the title, I have the opinion that you buy real estate and you hold it forever. It's a great long long-term wealth, right? You can check out the podcast too. We touch on a lot of different topics and hopefully they'll be useful to your listeners and for those that are looking in to get into uh, residential real estate, buy and hold stuff. Thank you for being so open with uh, our conversations, Sean, between you and me, and also yeah. just so willing to share some of the knowledge and wisdom you've gained in real estate over the years. I know folks are going to be better off because of it, which is, hey, that's what we're here on this side of heaven for. So thank you for your help, Sean. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Appreciate it, Mark. Boy, what a powerful interview with Sean. Thank you again, Sean, for uh, coming on our show. And 
when he was in that hardware store and he had decided to take a call while he was in the hardware store shopping, the banker basically telling him he's freezing their line of credit. Wow. He didn't even know that banks could do that, that they could offer a line of credit and then 10 months later, take it away. Who do you think you are? Was the words that Sean said. You know, one, another takeaway I heard was what is the value of liquidity in your business? Sean talked about how we were under a eviction moratorium, at least through recording of the episode. It was through October 17th. It could have been extended as of today, this podcast airing. But again, it's already been pushed back four times. And basically, the state of Illinois is telling landlords that you cannot evict a tenant in court and you cannot kick them out and you can't force them to pay rent. So that is a huge problem for landlords. And once again, underscores the value of cash liquidity in your business. Now, another takeaway for me was looking back, Sean said he set his sights too small when it comes to putting money into his whole life policies, but he said he set his sights too small. All right, you know, he's going to pay this little premium and it's going to grow and that's fine in five or 10 years. He might have a little bit of money to do something with, but if he wants to take down huge commercial deals, cash only deals, stuff like that, he needs to think bigger. Those are his words. I need to think bigger. So take his advice and think as big as you possibly can because that's as big as your potential will allow you to grow. Finally, opportunities come to those who can say yes to them. That's a phrase at the end there that really stuck with me. Opportunities only come to those who can say yes to them. And you'll never see that great opportunity if you're always living paycheck to paycheck. So wrapping up this episode, thank you again, Sean, for coming on our show and sharing some of your insights with us. Guys, I want to give you a quick heads up. We are hiring and it is absolutely an incredible dream job. I cannot think of a better type of work to do and serving all of you. So if you have ever thought about starting your own business where your potential allows you to grow and expand to your opportunity, then now is the time to reach out. We only are accepting applications for a few more weeks and it's easy to apply. Uh, we're building a practice where you can hang your own shingle, but you get true mentorship daily from me and also all the other associates that have been trained by me and our team here at Lake Growth Financial Services. It's very easy to apply, but we do need to hear from you in the next few weeks. Go to bit.ly slash work LG. That's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash work L as in Lake, G as in growth. So bit.ly slash work LG, and let us know if you'd like to participate in this lucrative and exciting career where we're changing the lives of families by helping them reach their financial goals without taking any unnecessary risk. Finally, I want to thank you all for joining me for another episode of Not Your Average Financial Podcast, helping you think different about your money, your economy, and your future. This has been another episode of the Not Your Average Financial Podcast. To join a financial revolution and start thinking different about money, go to www.nyafinancialpodcast.com and click Request a Meeting. The topics presented in this podcast are for general information only and not for the purposes of providing legal, accounting, or investment advice. On such matters, please consult a professional who knows your specific situation.